Okay, well, why don't we um, start off in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you have revealed us, um, revealed yourself to us through your word and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can come together and learn from your word. We pray that we would hear from you. Speak to us, Lord, by your spirit, not through my words, but through your words. Speak to us so that we might know you more, that we might become like you. Lord, please change us through the preaching of your word. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be uh, continuing on through our series uh, through First Peter. And um, a lot of the time when we look uh, at various scriptures, we need to look at the original context. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot more work to do when we're looking through Old Testament passages, figuring out what the exact context uh, was, but... Um, a lot of the time in the New Testament, the, the context is, is pretty similar to ours. It's, you know, a letter being addressed to a, to a church. Uh, but the, the surrounding cultural context is, is what can vary quite a bit. And so I want you to imagine for a second that, that you're in this first century context. You're living in, in the Roman Empire, uh, you know, say modern day Turkey or Greece. That's kind of where uh, the, this letter was being sent to where modern day Turkey is. You're a normal citizen, you get on with your job each day, uh, you offer incense and worship to the emperor just because it's what everyone does, you pay your taxes because you're a good Roman citizen, you make enough to make a living and enjoy life, so life is actually pretty comfortable. And then after work, you spend your night partying at the local temple, that's where everyone goes, where everyone eats and drinks to excess. There's a few more antics uh, that probably shouldn't be mentioned in detail in, a, in the context of a sermon. Um, but life is really all about your own enjoyment. You eat and drink and have as much sex as you like. Life is pretty trouble-free, but things are still a little bit empty. But it's pretty trouble-free. Until all of a sudden these guys called apostles rock up, claiming that there's only one true God and his name is Jesus. And then you come to believe that gospel message. You realize that this guy, Jesus, came and died for your sins and rose again from the dead and your life is turned upside down. You have eternal life. All of a sudden, you know the God that created the universe and created you to worship him. And then you can't wait to tell your friends, but then hanging out at the temple just doesn't quite have the same appeal anymore. You know it's wrong and you don't really like hanging out there. But you still want to reach out to them. But then all of a sudden they don't want anything to do with you because you're no longer going to the pagan temple with them. You've found salvation, but now it's come at a cost, a social cost for you. Okay, now let's transfer that to today. What's, what's our situation today? Maybe you've been a Christian for years or you've, you've grown up in a Christian family. Life was pretty easy upbringing, Sunday school, all that kind of stuff. School was okay until all of a sudden you get to a bit later on in high school when your peers start going out to parties, getting drunk. All of a sudden you go from being a regular kid to the unpopular kid. Maybe it started happening at work. You work in an office and everything is normal until all of a sudden you don't want to hang out with them with the Friday drinks that, that always go to excess and drunkenness, you go, no, I, I don't want to be a part of that. 
all of a sudden you're the odd one out at work because you say that you go to church on Sunday or something weird like that. Something crazy like you still believe in God. But maybe you've still got plenty of friends and family outside of work, so everything is still pretty comfortable. Until you're hanging out at Christmas dinner or something like that, and inevitably the the gay marriage debate gets brought up, and you happen to say that you believe that God is between uh, that marriage is between a man and woman because it's being created by God. You still love people, but you you can't go against what God has written, and all of a sudden you're you're an outcast. You're labelled a bigot or deemed intolerant. Maybe it could be at the family dinner, someone or, or hanging out with your friends, someone says. Well, I, I, I think I'll go to heaven after I die because I've, I've, I've been a pretty good person. And then you gently explain that actually none of us are good enough to get to heaven. We all need forgiveness. We all need to be forgiven by Jesus if we ever want to expect eternal life. And all of a sudden it doesn't go down well. All of a sudden your belief in the gospel actually has a cost, a social cost. You've received obviously so much more from God, but it hasn't actually made life easier. It's made life harder, it's, it's strained relationships, it can wreck your social standing. It's ruined our chance of getting ahead in this life. So how do we respond to that? How do we actually continue to live for God when these kind of social pressures are getting stronger and stronger? So that, that's the, the running theme that's actually been all throughout First Peter. Um, there's this continual theme of, of being um, strangers and exiles in this world that isn't really our home. And so Peter is writing to these churches who are under that increasing social pressure. But he's writing to remind them of the great hope that we have. And so our job, in the midst of this strange world that isn't our home, our job is to proclaim the excellencies of God. Not to conform to the world, not to be like them, not to just be like the rest of the culture around us but to be like Jesus, to worship him and to tell others about him. And so we've learned over the last few weeks not to be revolutionaries. There was the, the few um, passages on, on how we are to submit to governing authorities, to submit to our masters in the workplace, uh, submission within marriage, th- things like that. And so we're not called to be uh, revolutionaries. Uh, and, and so they were really specific examples, though. You know, How do you as a Christian live in this situation or in that situation. Uh, I think this, this passage is, is a lot more general than that. It's not just workplace. or it, It's more of a society, culture in general. How do, how do we exist as, as Christians? So let's uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'm actually just going to uh, give away the ending of my sermon straight away. If you look down... First uh, Peter chapter 4, all the way at the end, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's, that's basically it. So th- this, this section is, is, um, it is theological, but it's also very practical. The other, other passages talked about the future hope that we have, which this one does as well. Uh, but it's not just about setting our hope in the future. Theologically, we know that we have a future hope. But it's also what we do here and now. It's just getting on with being faithful to God, continuing to do good right now, to continue to live as God's people. 
But, okay, so let's, let's go back to the start of the chapter. So from verse 1 it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for, uh, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So there's so much there just in the first couple of verses. Um, but straight away he's actually referring back to last week's passage, saying, since therefore Christ suffered. So he's already referring back to the suffering that he mentioned uh, in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Christ was willing to come and suffer and die for us, the unrighteous. He was righteous and yet he chose to die in our place. He chose to make a way for us to be forgiven by God by taking the punishment that should, be, that should come upon us. God should judge us for our sins and yet Christ came and suffered for me and for you. But Peter isn't actually bringing up this uh, Christ suffering in the exact same way. In in chapter 3, he was explaining what Christ was doing. He was dying for our sins. But but here he's actually bringing it up again, uh, because Christ didn't just actually just die for our sins, to make atonement for our sins. He actually died to serve as an example for us. So he says, since, Christ, uh, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So that's a bit, bit of an odd verse, a few things to figure out there. What, what was Christ's way of thinking and, and how are we meant to have that same way of thinking? And then it says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what does that, that mean as well? So I, I won't uh, unpack it all or go into the Greek. We can um, yeah, talk through it in more detail after the service if you'd like, because you do a whole sermon just on these first two verses. But I think the main thing that we learn from this, this passage and, and the example of Christ uh, is the the, um, the connection between obedience and suffering, that, that suffering is a consequence of obedience. Although I think it's better to put it the other way around, rather that obedience leads to suffering, because not, not all suffering is a direct result of obedience. Um, just briefly, a side note, look, look down in, in verse 15. Um, it says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a, as a meddler. So, you know, Peter's making the distinction there's, there's suffering because of your obedience. There's also suffering just because you're doing the wrong thing. So we don't want to confuse those two. But so basically, put my slides up. There we go. So verses 1 through 6 is that obedience leads to suffering. And so what about the mind of Christ? What happened was Jesus chose obedience and as a direct result, he suffered. He was condemned by those who lived in darkness because they hated the light of the world. He spoke the truth. He rejected prideful people and gathered in the humble, which is an excellent way of being unpopular with Pharisees and Sadducees and any self-righteous people. He was willing to be rejected even to the point of going to the cross, because obedience to the Father and his plan of salvation was more important than disobedience. 
So Peter's saying that we need to have the exact same mindset. A willingness to obey God no matter the cost. Because we're actually faced with the exact same choice. If you live exactly like the world, you'll be embraced by the world. As soon as you step out of line and live differently than the world, it'll cost you. So we're to have the same mindset that Christ did. You go, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done with sin. I, I would rather face suffering and rejection than disobey the God that saved me. And when he says um, ceased from sin, this, this isn't talking about sinless perfection. This doesn't mean that Christians no longer sin at all. I think we all know from our daily experience we all struggle with sin long after we, uh, long after we get saved. So it's not talking about ceasing from sin in, in the sense that we become perfect. It's our mindset. We're finished with sin. We're done with it. We, it's part of our old life. We put it away because we would rather suffer along with Christ than disobey God. And, and so verse 2 repeats the two contrasting options. Uh, so verse 2 says, So as to live for the rest of, of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So following the will of God may lead to suffering, but, but, but our aim in life isn't the avoidance of pain, uh, you know, just to be popular, or the avoidance of ostracism. We're just here to be God's people and to live doing the will of God rather than for our, our own human passions. And now the phrase there, our, our time in the flesh, uh, he's using it a little bit differently than the way Paul uses it, the, you know, walking in the flesh where we're following sinful desires versus walking in the spirit. Uh, here I believe he's just, just talking about the rest of our time on earth. We are just in, in the physical flesh. We're just to spend it doing the will of God rather than our own passions. And so now, I mean, that, that sounds really simple, but when the rubber hits the road out there in our daily life, it's obviously much harder than that. And that's why we need to look to Christ as our example. Look at the, the extent that he went to, to be obedient and to save you. Christ was willing to go to the cross rather than choose sin. So if we're tempted to to go along with the culture, to, to remain silent when maybe we should speak up. We can, we can make a conscious choice to choose to be different because the cost is irrelevant. Whatever cost that we have, it's, it's not going to be as much as what our Saviour went through for us. But so then Peter continues on and... Um, gets into the specifics a bit more of, of the, the culture that they were living in and how we're to be different than that culture. So verse 3 now lists the human passions that are contrary to the will of God. So this is uh, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Um, one interesting thing to notice is that a lot of those things are actually natural and good desires that have been twisted and perverted uh, into selfish and reckless and, and sinful pursuits. So, um, and actually the, the, the first, first thing on the list, uh, sensuality, 
the, the, the word is a bit more broad than that. It, it sort of more just refers to excesses, ta- taking good things and taking them to excess. So, um, you know, God created and designed uh, sex and alcohol and food and, and gave us hearts and brains to, to worship. But then we take those things either to excess or we misuse them. So, so drinking gets turned into drunkenness and food gets turned into gluttony and sex within the covenant of marriage gets turned into adultery. And we were created to worship God and we, we take our natural desire to worship and we turn away from God and worship anything else. Even sometimes good created things that God gave us like family and marriage and, and a job or money or anything like that and we can worship them and, and place them above God. And, and I think this does apply to everyone. I, um, I think there are passages in First Peter that, that indicate it was a bit of a mixed congregation. There were both Jews and Gentiles. Um, but I think, you know, the obvious implication here is that he's referring to Gentile pagan temples. Um, and we often often talk about the collapse of society, Western society now. Things are getting worse. Um, even look at this, it's not actually all that different. You know, talk about society going downhill. I, I think it went downhill at about Genesis 3, the fall of man, and then it's pretty much just been... All bad from from there. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it, it 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 has its highs and lows sometimes, but I mean, the human heart hasn't actually changed all all that much. Everyone that sins is is a slave to sin until we're rescued and redeemed by Christ. And so then he says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. It's, it's worded a bit strangely there, but basically he's saying. Enough of this. You've spent enough time doing this in your past life. Time to change. Time to move on from it. And again, I think that applies to all of us. You know, we might not be um, struggling with the same sins that these people were going to their pagan festivals, but I, th- I think it applied to every Jew and every Gentile in that congregation. I think it applies to all of us, no matter our, our Christian upbringing or anything like that. We were all dead in our sins, and I think the key there is that they were uh, that, that all of us were living for, for selfish gratification. We might look in different places than than these ancient Gentiles did. The outworking was different, but the underlying sinful heart was the same. We live for our own pleasure. We live for ourselves rather than living for God. You know, pick your sins, whatever it is, whatever it is that we struggled with. He's saying you've spent enough time. Doing it. Haven't haven't you wasted enough time in sin in the past? Let's move on from that. Let, let's just get on with our new life in Christ. But of course there'll be resistance. That's, that's the main point of this opening section. And, and for a couple of reasons that we can learn uh, from this, uh, this uh, list that, that Peter gives to us. Uh, so firstly, look at the last of the sins that, that Peter listed. Uh, don't know about the different translations, but I've got uh, lawless idolatry. Yeah. And that, uh, this term is pretty unique to Peter's letter because it was actually pretty unique to, to Jewish and Christian thinking. Uh, you know, it, it was common for people at the time to, to disagree about religious matters and religious practices, but to call it lawless idolatry, that was a, a step too far in the Greco-Roman world to imply that someone else was doing something wrong, morally wrong, by worshipping another god. That was just unheard of in the, in the, in the Roman world. You know, there was actually no uh, real moral or social problem with Christians worshipping Jesus in the first century. 
If you said you worship Jesus, that's that's no problem. But when you say we worship Jesus and him alone, that's it. Jesus and nothing more. We'll worship Jesus and not the emperor. We'll worship Jesus and not offer sacrifices at a pagan temple. That's That was the real source of, of um, social conflict. But I think that actually sounds pretty familiar to to our own context. It's it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I've, you know, the amount of times I've, I've heard people say, oh, that, that's great if that works for you, and that's it. You know, but as long as you don't, you know, as long as you keep it to yourself, as long as you practice it in church and in your own home and you leave everyone else alone and everyone can believe what they want, then, it, then it's okay. That kind of Jesus is, is an acceptable Jesus to, to our culture. But as soon as you say, actually, Jesus is Lord over everyone, whether they acknowledge it or not, Jesus is Lord. When we say that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, that's the part that's controversial. It was controversial then and it's controversial today. Of course, that, that's our only option. If, if, if we are to be followers of Jesus and he claimed to be the only way, then if we claim that he's not, then we're not following the true Jesus of the Bible. I mean, there's, and there's no such thing as a private Christian. The, the idea that Christians should just practice their beliefs at home or in the church, well, but we've been commanded to go and spread the gospel to all nations. So how can we be followers of Jesus just within our own homes, keeping it to ourselves? It doesn't make any sense. But that's why there's a cost in a, in a very pluralistic society. And, and by pluralistic, um, it doesn't mean just that many beliefs are accepted it's actually that we. It's the only acceptable thing is to believe that there are many valid beliefs, and and coming along and saying that Jesus is he's not just a truth or my truth, but he is the truth. That's where there's resistance, and there was resistance here um, by by referring to their pagan practices as lawless idolatry would have been horribly offensive um, uh, to the pagans. And there's another reason why there will be resistance. So verse four says. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So they're surprised because sin seems like the obvious choice. When, you, when you're choosing between sin or abstaining from sin, and they wouldn't even, even call it sin, but it seems strange to them. And, and that's because a lot of these sins, they just come naturally to us. I mean, and and for, if we're honest, we recognise that Sin is pleasurable, otherwise we wouldn't ever fall into sin. But it's only temporary. Sin offers short-term joy in exchange for long-term disappointment and eventually judgment. But nonetheless, it says they insult you because you don't do the things that they do. It's not just that claiming Jesus is the only true God and the way to eternal life it's not just our, our talk that's the problem, but it's even our walk. Simply living differently is enough to cause offence because it exposes sin for what it is. So they're shocked and they're surprised and it says that they malign you or they, they mock you. And there are a few different ways that we can respond. It's really, really easy if people are, are really harsh toward us. The, the easy option is to just respond to evil with, with evil, to respond in the same tone to, to mock and ridicule back or another easy way to respond is to compromise to join in we don't want to be the odd ones out so maybe 
Maybe I'll just join them and it'll make life a little bit easier for me. But Peter's telling us to have the same mindset as Christ did. To put away our old selves, to choose obedience that may lead to suffering, but our Saviour did the same thing. And Peter gives a reason why we can respond like that. See, by seeing their fallen state for what it really is, You could just look at the world and and see all the injustice, see people getting away with sin and think, well, it's just not fair. But then we see them for who they truly are and and, and the state that they're actually in. They're, They're not just sinners. They're not just people mocking you. They're enslaved to sin. It says that they're being swept away by by a flood of debauchery. They're in the exact same predicament that we were in until Christ freed us. So they don't need our mockery. We should actually pity them and love them because of what it says in the next verse. Verse 5 says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So having this eternal perspective changes everything. Everyone will stand before God and be judged according to whether they believe the gospel or if they reject the gospel. So death is not the end. You know, Hebrews 9 says that it's appointed to men once to die and after this comes judgment. And so when Christians died, the unbelievers would be able to mock and, and say, well, what was the point of avoiding all of these sins, you've died just like the rest of us will all die. So what does it matter? We'll all go to a hole in the ground. Who cares? But if there's judgment afterwards, then those who have chosen to obey and suffer, and and they'll eventually be vindicated when God's judgment comes. So first of all, for us, from our own point of view of avoiding sin, this eternal mindset means that sin kind of loses its appeal. You know, we, we have this tendency to look for, for short-term pleasure rather than long-term gain. But when we, when we have the eternal mindset, when we recognise that God will eventually judge everyone, the living and the dead, sin just seems all the more foolish. It just seems so much more pointless when we, when we know what's coming after we die. But secondly, with this mindset, it it actually helps us to endure mockery from other people because we actually see the futility of their mockery. And and it should change our attitude towards unbelievers as well. I know for for me, uh, you know, various apologetic debates or moral debates, um, it's really easy to lose focus and want to win the argument rather than win the person to Christ. Uh, But we do that because we lose sight of the fact that they are a a human being created in the image of God, standing before us, but will one day stand before God. That should change whether we're just trying to win an argument or win them to Christ. I mean, uh, just last week, I was looking at an article um, on um, uh, well, the statistics of how, how, much, um, how many abortions take place in America. And uh, I, I made the mistake of choosing to scroll down and look through the comments because I'm an idiot. But um, 
it's yeah, don't always avoid comments. It's it's always a bad thing. But, but I mean, just the the amount of um, or just the evil in the comments, the the celebration of sin, and yet it's so easy to to demand justice, to to be frustrated with them, to want to bicker in return, to malign in return. But we have to remember this eternal mindset, that they're, they're trapped in the flood of their own sin and unable to fix themselves, and they're actually heading towards judgment. See, we, we can look at it as in such a, a short-term kind of way that they're saying vile things. We go, but they're getting away with it. How can they be getting away with it? But they're actually heading towards judgment. And, and I don't mean that in a way that we're to take pleasure in that, but it actually allows us to love them and be patient by recognising the state that they're in. So it's interesting that, that um, two of the best verses in the New Testament about apologetics, about defending the faith, um, they're actually also telling us about being gentle uh, because of the helpless and, and fearful state that they're in. So uh, two of the verses are um, actually just from um, just from last, last chapter actually. Uh, so 1 Peter 3 verse 15. It says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So it's sort of tied in together. It's almost as if God knew exactly the type of mindset that people who are interested in apologetics might actually have. They have a tendency towards a lack of gentleness or something. So, um, but then the, the next passage, um, 2 Timothy is it chapter 2. Uh, so verse uh, 24, so it's also talking um, about correcting opponents, but it also has just a, a large emphasis on our attitude while we're correcting opponents. So it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But recognising that that's their state, that's the state that they're in, that should lead us to be far more gentle with people who are mocking us, who are saying and doing evil things. The people have mocked you for being a Christian. Right, but everyone will give account to the judge. You know, you may have lost friends or family, they may have rejected you and now despise you, but everyone will give an account to the judge. You might be an outcast at your workplace or among a footy team or a club, whatever it is, you might be on the outer. But everyone will give an account to the judge. It just changes everything. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. We're not the ones to dispel justice. We, we leave that up to God. It's God's job to judge the world, not ours. So we just get on with the task of doing good. That's how we respond to it, just get on with doing good. And we see that in the, the next section. Uh, so this is verses 7 through 11. So from verse 7 it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I love how the, the scriptures never seem to just give us a list of sins to avoid. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. It actually gives us a list of commands to, to replace them with. 
is not just avoid the sin, but replace it with this good action. We replace sin with obedience, uh, and then uh, the, the big problem in, in the, the first section with the Gentiles' uh, lack of self-control, taking everything to excess, drunkenness, things like that. But now he's saying replace excess with self-control, drunkenness with sober-mindedness, idolatry with prayer to the living God. So there's sort of the, the contrast between the two uh, on an individual level, but I think we also see it at, at a corporate level as well. In the, in the first section, we see a, a pagan temple filled with worship uh, to, to idols and, and self-seeking hedonism. But then it's replaced with a, a church community that no longer lives, uh, where we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for others. So why do we do it? Why do we pursue these commands? I think the, the same reason why we avoid sin. We were to avoid sin because we recognise our position in history. We know that there's judgment at the end. And, and I think he's kind of getting at something similar uh, in this section as well, that, that we know the end from the beginning. We know our place in the story of all of redemptive history. So again, verse 7 says, the, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So why should we be self-controlled, sober-minded? Because we, we live in light of the knowledge that the end of all things is at hand. We know that there is an end coming. It's not just going to be the extinction of our species and the eventual heat death of the universe. We know that the world ends with the return of Christ, where there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and we'll get to be with him. So knowing that that's where we're heading, that changes, changes our attitude and our motivation and our perspective so that we can just get on with doing God's will now. So what are the things that we replace all those sins from the first section with now in, in the second, second section? So, so verse 8 is, is a real, uh, or from verse 8, is a really good list for our church. Um, something something to, for us to be striving towards. So, so uh, verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So it's pretty easy to love one another when we're all in agreement, when we're all getting along. And, and I think, you know, for the most part, I think that's um, what it's like when we're starting a new church. Everything's really exciting. We're all on, on the same page. But I want us to actually... Commit to having this attitude no matter what happens. Commit to love everyone who comes in here. See, this love has no restrictions. It just says, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. So it doesn't just say, love the people who never do you any wrong. This obviously means that we're to love the people, even those who sin against us, we still have to love them. And it should be a love that covers a multitude of their sins. Obviously we're thinking in terms of that, but maybe we're also the ones who are doing the sinning against others, so that's why we need to receive that love as well. So there's no restrictions to that love, and there's no restrictions to the hospitality as well. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And that's because it can become a burden. There can be people that come in that might be harder to love, that might be harder to be hospitable towards. The sin can 
creep into a church and do so much damage so easily. But I think it's not just sin that creeps into the church. It's, it's our response to sin, which I think is sin in itself sometimes. When we respond, when people sin against us, we respond with bitterness, with resentment, with hatred, with a lack of forgiveness. But loving one another with a love that covers a multitude of sins means showing forgiveness even when we're the ones that have been wronged. And we can do that because God has been way, way more forgiving to us than, uh, than we can offer to someone else because our sins towards God are so much worse than what anyone could do to us. So it's easy to be the church that puts on the brave face on a, on a Sunday where we all pretend to be perfect or we, we could become the... Um, the, the other problem is that we could become the church that has its own clicky groups where we only associate with the certain people who we get along with or who we're really similar to or who hasn't wronged us any, in any way or rubbed us up the wrong way. There's just no exceptions or outs or clauses or asterisks by the love one another command. It's for everyone. So the list of sins in the opening section, just to, to contrast the two again, the list of sins in the opening section were all caused by self-interest. But the, the outworking of those sins, pro- probably not something that we're actually tempted by. You know, we're not likely to swing by the local pagan temple for you know, drunken sex-filled festivals after this service. It's very unlikely. But we are still likely to actually fall into the same root cause of that sin, of self-interest, of self-serving. I mean, even, even by disobeying these commands, the, the, the desire to only love those who are like us, that's, that's actually the same kind of sin. It, it's the, the self-interest. It's being selfish when we only want to be hospitable to those who are easy to love rather than difficult people. But we're called to put away that kind of thinking, to love and serve one another. As let's continue on. Verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Uh, so here Peter is, is talking about spiritual gifts. Um, Often when Paul talks about spiritual gifts, you'll see it more in a, a list kind of format. Uh, and he, he's, he'll be explaining the different kinds of spiritual gifts and what they do and how they serve the church. Um, Peter's speaking a bit more broadly than that. He's not giving a, a list of all of the spiritual gifts. He's more just talking about the, um, their use, the, the importance that they're used in service of one another. Spiritual gifts are not for our own benefit. They're for the benefit of the church. But he does actually divide them up into two categories. Uh, so those who uh, speak and those who serve. And, and I think the, uh, the speaking, now, what, what does he use here? He says, uh, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So I don't think that's just referring to the gift of preaching and teaching. Well, it does include that. But it's even those who offer a word of encouragement, uh, a message of wisdom or knowledge. The main point is that all these giftings, uh, when we speak into one another's lives, we're actually to speak the word of God, the oracles of God, 
into each other's lives, and that's how we can actually serve one another. And that's why it's so important that we stay in the Word daily. We, we study it, we live it, we breathe it, we know what it says about a wide variety of topics, so that when we come to one another, when we need help, when we need advice, when we need prayer, it's so easy to respond with our own wisdom, our own advice, the, well, here's what I think you should do. That, that's our natural inclination to do that or actually to speak the word into each other's lives. And more than that, we're to speak the gospel into each other's lives. Remind each other of the gospel, remind each other of the hope that we have in Christ. So in all the various situations that we could come to one another with, whether we need prayer, whether we're struggling with sin, whether we need healing, whatever it is, we look at that circumstance through the lens of the gospel and we preach the gospel to one another. We will remind each other of what Christ has done for us. We will remind each other of the hope that we have. And we do that because God is the one that's giving us the words. We, we don't have the ability to, to really help anyone in our own strength. That's why we have God's words. We speak his words. And that's how we can serve one another. And so that, that's on the one hand those speaking gifts and then on the other hand there's the serving gifts. It says that we serve one another because God gives us the strength to do so. So those gifts could be generosity, it can be praying for healing, it can be acts of mercy. If we try to do those things in our own strength, in our own strength we, we burn out pretty quickly trying to take on board everyone else's problems. We can grumble when we see people as a burden rather than a brother or sister that needs our help. So when we serve others, we need to remember that we're serving with the strength that God gives us. And, and the reason why we do that, look at the, the next part of the verse there, says that in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. So our call, this is the call for our, our whole church, is to just get on with doing good because when the church functions like this, when we serve one another, when we forgive one another, when we love one another, God is glorified. And so we, we live in light of the knowledge that he will return to judge the world. So remember back to verse 7. It says that the end of all things is at hand. We don't know when that's going to happen, though. We don't know when Jesus will return. So we don't lock ourselves away from the world in a monastery. We don't twiddle our thumbs, gazing at the sky, looking at our watches, wondering whether he should be returning, maybe later this afternoon, maybe tomorrow. We don't know, so we just get on with the task of glorifying God by loving one another, forgiving one another, and serving one another. I love this. Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew that the end of the world was coming later today. He said the first thing he would do would be plant a tree and pay his taxes, even though the end of the world is coming later on today. Because we know that Jesus is returning to, to judge the living and the dead, we, we live in light of that, but we just get on with the daily task of bringing glory to God. Okay, so we'll move on to our, our, our final section, uh, but they, they are still all related. So um, we learned about the, uh, that obedience leads to suffering, but our ability to cope with that 
is knowledge that there is final judgment. And then in the second section, um, it, the, the application is that we serve others and glorify God. But again, there's that eternal mindset. We, we can do that because the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> and now this final section, verse uh, 12 to 19, is really about the same thing. It's how do, how do we as Christians respond to suffering? Uh, and again, it's in light of this eternal mindset. It does focus on judgment to come for unbelievers, and therefore we shouldn't be going along with them. It, and it does rem, uh, remind us to continue to do good in the midst of suffering. But he actually goes a step further in, in this section. doesn't just say that, that we will suffer or that, or that we need to um, respond to suffering by continuing to do good. It actually says that we are to rejoice in suffering. It seems like an, an odd thing to do, a countercultural thing to do. Uh, our culture is, is all about doing whatever we can to make our lives more comfortable. But the first step in, in being able to respond with rejoicing, the, the first thing that Peter points out is that we shouldn't be surprised. It's not an odd thing for a Christian to suffer. And, and that's probably difficult for us to understand because the, the 21st century church, um, or the 21st century Western church, has it so easy, especially when we compare it geographically to the church around the world. Um, and I'm very careful to, to use the term suffering as it does here, um, rather than necessarily persecution that I, I don't think we're facing here compared to uh, other countries around the world, but also other periods of time. Uh, but we need to recognise our current Western church is the, anom is the anomaly, not the norm for the church. So we aren't to be surprised if and when suffering comes. We should expect struggles. We should expect opposition. We should expect resistance, hostility, breakdown in relationships. It doesn't mean everything will always be as bad as it could possibly be, but, but the, it does mean that there will be that tension there. With our, with our unsaved friends, with our unsaved family, there is that tension. There is that ability for things to go south, for, for conversations to not go well. And it says that God uses this to test us. And that's sort of referring back to chapter 1. Uh, John spoke about that of the, the purifying fire that refines us like gold. So this suffering comes to make us more like Christ. It's, it's obviously difficult to go through, but the end result is that we'll be more like Christ. So this suffering isn't really a surprise. And, and that's consistent with, with other, other passages. Uh, and we can expect it partially because of unbelievers, the, the, the will of unbelievers. So uh, this was Jesus speaking to his disciples. He, disciples. he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, and then, uh, well, I haven't got it up there actually. So um, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, this, this is a, a tough verse. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That, that's a tough verse because we need to ask ourselves, if, if we're comfortable and, and not copying that much for our faith, how, how obedient are we being in our evangelism? So 
So suffering is to be expected because of the way unbelievers react. But it's actually more than that. It's actually part of the way God operates. So it's not just the will of unbelievers, but it's actually suffering according to the will of God. Verse 12 says it's God who's testing us. And and verse 19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And so, yeah, this verse here that that Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the faith to believe in Jesus has been given to us as a gift. We all agree on that. That one's an easy one. But then the privilege of suffering for him has also been given to us as a gift from God. So there's a lot to, to unpack there and, and qualify. So let, let's, let's be clear. Peter is not talking about God punishing us. And he's not uh, morally responsible for the atrocities committed against the church and against his people around the world and over the centuries. But, but wicked people fighting against the church, they're actually only working towards God achieving his purposes. So exactly like what happened to Christ. There was, there was great evil committed against Christ. Judas betrayed Jesus. The Jews yelled crucify him. The Roman authorities treated him as a treasonous criminal. But, but God was actually working behind the scenes in, in all of that, working out his plan of salvation to rescue the world. Let's look at verse 13. It says, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So it means that we rejoice in our suffering because it shows our allegiance with him. We are suffering for his cause. And again, the next few verses add that qualification that I mentioned earlier on, that it's specifically... Uh, suffering for the cause of Christ and not suffering if we're and not talking about if we're suffering because of our own sins. If you treat people poorly when you evangelize, if you have no love towards them, if you're more concerned about winning an argument, and then if, if people are offended because you're being offensive, then this isn't what Peter is, is talking about here. And, and I think it's important to do that when, uh, when we share our faith and people respond negatively. We need to ask ourselves, well, is it because I was sharing the gospel? Is it because of something that the word of God says? Or is it because I was being a jerk about it? And you know, I'm, I know I'm more than capable of both sides of that. So, uh, but so we need to ask ourselves, why are they offended? Was it something I said or was it because of the word of God? But so why do we actually respond with rejoicing? So now, Peter isn't saying that we rejoice in the way, in the sense in which we just ignore our suffering. We pretend that it's not there or that it somehow takes away the hurt or the pain. It doesn't actually make the suffering less painful. It's actually that we can have both at once. In, in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul said that, that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's that we can have both at the same time. We can, we can find joy in the midst of suffering. And again, it's because we know the end from the beginning. We know, he talks about the glory that will be revealed. We know that Jesus will return, not only to judge the world, but to receive the glory that he deserves. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so that's why we can rejoice 
knowing that it will lead to greater glory. So in the same way that, that um, Jesus endured the cross, knowing that it would lead to later glory, we can endure suffering for the name of Christ, knowing that it will lead to greater glory when we uh, reach the new heavens and the new earth and that Christ reigns on his throne. But he doesn't actually just mean rejoice despite our sufferings or to turn our attention elsewhere. He's actually going a step further. He's saying that the suffering itself is a cause to rejoice and glorify God. And the reason for that is because it testifies to the end. It verifies the truth of our faith. We know that there's coming judgment. And, and there's a couple of tricky, tricky verses here. There's the last, last that we'll go through. Look uh, down in verse 17 and 18. It says, for, the time, uh, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? The judgment to begin at the household of God. That's a, that's a bit of a, a tricky passage. What he's not saying is that Christians who are suffering in specific ways are being judged or punished by God. We can't look at someone suffering and go, oh, you must have sinned in a certain way. What did you do against God? It's not what it's talking about. Because we're already forgiven. And so the judgment here doesn't refer to, to judgment in quite the same way that we often think of it, as God condemning people at the end and judging the world and finding them guilty. This is talking about God judging us through purifying fire, the same as, as earlier in the section and, and in chapter 1. God is judging us through purifying fire, he's, but he's not working towards our destruction. He's working towards our salvation to make us more like Christ. So the fact that he's already doing this for us now assures us of our future hope, but it also assures us of future judgment as well. So he's making a contrast between the two. If we as believers are facing this purifying fire, this uh, judgment that leads to our purification, if this is uh, so difficult, when it says scarcely saved, I, I think it means if the righteous is saved through this um, severely difficult way, then, then how much worse will it be for the ungodly and the sinner, for those who reject the gospel? So basically the whole passage is, is making a stark contrast between uh, the life and, and the eventual fate of the believer and unbeliever. So the final question I have is, is which side are you on with that? that, that all three sections have, have contrast be between believer and unbeliever. Those who have trusted in Christ and have a mind like Christ, a willingness to be obedient rather than go along with the world and, and get mocked. And again, that's not saying that we're saved by our, our obedience. But it's evidence that we belong to Christ. That obedience becomes more important to us than what people, people think of us. We no longer go along with the world because we recognise that there's final judgement. Now we want to live in a community of believers, serving one another, forgiving one another, loving one another. And even when things get tough, when we suffer, when we're mocked, we rejoice knowing that God will win in the end. Christ will return and Christ will reign. 
But is he purifying you? Is he making you more like Christ? Or is he returning to judge you and find you guilty? So we know the end is coming, but we know it hasn't come yet. And so if you haven't been saved, then there's actually still time because Christ hasn't returned yet. There's time to just believe in Jesus. He, gives, he offers salvation as a free gift. If you ask for forgiveness, he will forgive you because he died for your sins. But for those of us who have been saved, what an awesome future that we have ahead of us. Think about the ways in which you struggle, the ways in which people mock or malign you, whether it's difficult family relationships, whether work has made, been made difficult, whether friends have left you. You just have to say, what, what's the worst that they can do? They can't take away our salvation in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. And so I'll, I'll leave you with the final verse. So until he returns, he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So let's continue to do good. Let's continue to love one another. And, and we're going to have a chance to do that with our, uh, our lunch after the service as well. I love the, the, the hospitality that we can, we can show to one another. We want that to be a, a big part of this church. So that's just one way in which we can apply this passage to our, our church community. But let, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you for sending your son who came to the world to choose obedience to you and to your plan of salvation rather than sinning and going along with the world. Help us to have that same mindset. Help us to love you more than the world. Help us to desire obedience even if it costs us. Give us the strength to serve one another. And Lord, help us to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Help us to have an eternal mindset so that we can rejoice knowing that you will win in the end. We thank you and we praise you for that. Amen.